0: Hello, and welcome to the second episode of Women Talking About Their Lives. So, as promised, today I'm going to go into a little bit more depth of my political positions and why I have them, as well as um, give a couple other announcements for some things coming down the pike. So, first off, I want to talk about why being gender-critical is a really important um, theoretical position for feminists to hold right now. So, what do I mean by being gender-critical? This me- Gender-critical feminists are feminists who are critical of the entire concept of gender, So, they see gender not as this kind of, like, liberating force, but actually as a system of social oppression created primarily against women. Now, it's true, both men and women have different kind of social boxes that they're expected to fit into, and they're supposed to sort of trim their own personalities down to meet these sort of pre-prescribed, both aesthetic and um, personality boxes, right? But... What ends up happening is that women have to perform submission and men have to perform dominance. So even though gender roles affect both men and women, it's not necessarily equal. Men are expected to perform dominance, leadership, and um, the sort of aesthetic practices they're asked to partake in are a lot less time-consuming, a lot less expensive, and um, not as like dangerous or damaging to their body. Whereas women are expected to... Do dangerous and damaging things to their body, as well as um, perform submission for men. So always be available, be supportive, be self-sacrificing, sort of the qualities that you would expect in someone who, who is beholden to someone else, not necessarily a free autonomous person. So gender-critical feminists are critical of that. Um, this also means that they're critical of the concept of self-identification. Now, what is this? Self-identification is a sort of conce- is the concept that um, anyone who declares themselves male, female, or non-binary is really that thing. So recently, it's become it's come in vogue for um, to sort of hmm, to believe that self-identification is a sort of new wave of progressive praxis that's very much in line with uh, the previous sort of push for gay and lesbian rights as well as women's rights but um, this is actually sort of uh, I would call it a counter-revolutionary ideology that um, posits gender as sort of this stable biological essence within a person rather than one's body as the kind of stable biological essence of a person what do I mean by this? So if a straight man, you know, like beard buff guy in his 20s and 30s who has had all of this life experience of being treated as a man, living as a man, dating as a man, and interacting with the world as masculine wakes up one day and goes, actually, I'm a woman. Many feminists will say, well, this person has a right to enter any female spaces, and has a really important, perhaps even the most important opinion on women's issues and feminism. And we should all do everything that we can to welcome him in women's spaces and to cater feminism to him. And gender-critical feminists say, whoa, whoa, whoa you know, like, wait. You know? One's internal sense of gender doesn't necessarily determine how the world treats them. And it doesn't erase the historical backlog of, say, research, oppression, uh, financial problems, uh, all sorts of things, it, discrepancies in, in the design of buildings, that disadvantage women in preference of men. So this man can't experience misogyny. And things do get a little bit more complicated, uh, particularly when it comes to, like, you know, gay trans women who pass, people who have been on... Um, hormones for a long time and begin to live their lives being treated as another gender, certainly they can have lifestyles and experiences that can give them a lot of insight into experiencing misogyny in real life. But those are the exceptions and not necessarily the rule. And I think that it's more helpful, seeing the way that feminism has sort of contorted itself to accommodate all people with all differences, I actually don't think this is very useful for getting anything done. And given that those people are the exception and not necessarily the rule, I find it's a lot more useful to operate from a gender-critical perspective. Furthermore, I think it's a really important way to keep women's boundaries strong. Because what ends up happening is that often um, men who identify as either non-binary or female, because they have this lifetime of male entitlement, feel very comfortable stepping into women's spaces and telling women what to do but the reverse isn't necessarily true because if women who identify as men, they have a lifetime experience as women, all the fear, all the sort of taught submission, all all the taught submission sort of gender role of being self-sacrificing and kind. So they don't necessarily tend to walk into men's spaces and tell them what to do. And there's also sort of bodily discrepancies, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I think from an organizing perspective, um, Keeping stable notions of biological sex and a sort of dominance model of gender can enable us to discard a lot of the limiting and difficult gender roles in our society that don't serve women at all. As well as take patriarchal dominance a little bit more seriously. I think that there has become an attitude with the sort of rise culturally of self-identification that you know, if you're unhappy with your position as a woman, then that's probably a sign that you're not a woman. And I think that what this does is it really sucks a lot of energy and a lot of young people out of what would be really fruitful feminist praxis. You know, it's such a shame that we're living in an era where most young people have spent their entire lives online and do so much socializing over social media, but feminists and feminist thought has not you know, sort of reach the peaks and strength that we would want it to, in a large part because of the sort of conflict between um, what people believe are trans issues and what people believe are LGBTQ issues. And I think um, that truthfully, this conflict is not, we, we don't necessarily have to have this conflict. You know, there are other ways of looking at this problem, and there, there are issues that I would really like to explore here. Now, I am, I am gender critical, but I don't necessarily believe that... Um, I'm not right-wing, you know? I, I don't believe trans people should be harmed. And I think that the, the, the sort of manufactured conflict on social media and also legally between women's rights and, you know, tr- what people think are transgender rights is largely manufactured to create conflict and to serve the purpose of destroying women's rights generally, which which truthfully doesn't help anyone. Um, but moving forward, I think that separatism is the way to go. Men should not be allowed in women's spaces. Men do not belong in feminism um trans men do belong in feminism and biological females who have identified as, you know, anywhere else on the gender spectrum do belong in feminism. You know, they have female bodies that need treatment. They have, you know, lifetimes of female experiences. They experience sexual harassment at higher rates. And they they deserve our help, support and care. Um Yes. <laughs> And I think that welcoming men into female spaces in female organizing spaces, uh, tends to sabotage them as well as makes women a lot more fearful of expressing their true opinions and can lead to women engaging in coping responses that they have previously had to patriarchal norms and to men in general that are just not helpful for women finding their power and being able to stand up for themselves. So I understand that this is a little bit controversial, but, um, if we look at the sort of rise of, you know, a transgender politics and the downfall of, you know, the feminism and feminist organizing and the eventual um, overturn of Roe v. Wade, I think we can see that there's a good bit of correlation, particularly around um, the priorities that LGBTQ and feminist organizations have had over the past 20 years because they're not really prioritized around women's issues they're prioritized around trans issues and i will get into this a little bit in a little bit more depth um i have some kind of exciting interviews with detransitioners about the sort of risks of transgender medicine the history of psychiatry and all of the reasons why um I have, incre- I have increasing concerns that this is a sort of astroturfed, uh, largely counter-revolutionary movement that has emerged in a large part in response to the gains that feminism has made, as well as some really sick profiteering by academics and um, doctors. So we'll leave that there. But anyway, it's really important for feminist organizations to be gender critical, because we're not going to be able to get anything done if we can't admit why women are oppressed and women are oppressed because of their biological capacity to carry children, which leads me to why socialism is important. (laughs) So why is socialism important? Um, Socialism is one of the oldest left-wing tendencies in the West. It's also been historically one of the most effective, um, when you look at the success of unions, when you look at the, the successes and the failures, which I'll get to, of state socialism, you can see that so like socialist methods work a lot better and a lot faster than other slower or more decentralized methods for change, right? If you hold the sort of his- history of anarchism up and the history of socialism as well as union organizers and movement leaders who are very influenced by socialism, you're going to, one is going to come out a little bit, and then liberalism, you know, one is going to come up a little bit more effective than the other. And I think it's really important that even if you're largely skeptical of communists and socialists, even if you had really, really bad experiences with male socialist-led organizations, which are completely understandable. A lot of those men who run those orgs are fucking nightmares. Um, It's still important to engage with and read and understand the theory because it's really, really helpful, not just in organizing, but also in understanding the theory that you're reading a lot deeper. A lot of second wave feminists came to feminism through the anti-war movement, which means that they were engaging in Marxist ideas. It means they were engaging in Maoist ideas. It means that they were engaging in anti-imperialism, and that informed their perspective when they began to talk and think about feminism. And it's a large reason why, when you look at second wave feminism in comparison to third wave feminism in the states, one is a lot more effective than the other. The idea that women exist as a class is a socialist idea. It is an idea that was propagated by Ingalls, who was probably ripping off, riffing off his illiterate girlfriend. Um, and he was the first academic to identify women as a class of people who were oppressed for their reproductive capacity. It doesn't mean that women haven't necessarily thought of it before, but the promotion of these ideas come from the socialist tradition. You know, One of the largest countries to legalize abortion was the Soviet Union in the early 20th century. It was also one of the largest countries and earliest to give women the right to vote. I believe Finland was first, but Finland wasn't so close to Russia and also for a very long time a haven for socialists running away from the, running um, from the Tsarist police, I doubt that would have happened. When you look at the history of union organizing in the U.S., a lot of those people were heavily, heavily influenced by the Bolsheviks, by state socialism, and eventually by Maoism. So... Even though you can look at the US and be like, oh, like this system is liberal, like it's not influenced by socialisms at all. Actually, the big social movements that tended to force the hand of liberals to actually get anything done, they were influenced by socialists. And state socialism has a mixed record. I understand that. I don't think that it's um, contrary. Yeah, I don't think that it delegitimizes reading some theory and reading some history books and taking ideas from mm. communists and socialism, socialists to admit that state socialism has a mixed record. And some of that record is good. And it doesn't make you a terrible person to be like, I think that ending foot binding in China was good. And I think that we have a lot to learn from people who literally... Like fought and won a civil war and ended up improving their country in a lot of ways. If China had stayed on a capitalist path, they would, in a lot of ways, look very similar to India today and be a lot less autonomous. And while China has plenty of problems, I'm not defending everything that that happens. There are some things that we as feminists and as organizers can learn and apply in our own situation, because we're not going to be able to lead perfect movements either. But we can lead movements that are very effective. And so I think, I think it's it's really, really a deep expression of arrogance for feminists living in the West to refuse to engage with successful revolutionaries in the third world and to refuse to engage with the works of Marx and Engels. Because even if you end up engaging and fully understanding these ideas and then rejecting them, you're still going to have a much better understanding of how the history of activism and the history of left-wing organizing has worked for the past 200 years. And so it is worth it to do that. So I'm a lot of the texts we're going to read will be marxist in tradition and i really encourage you to listen to them because i think they'll give you a much deeper richer background and applying marxist analysis is really useful and and it's a huge reason why being gender critical matters because creating these kind of bright class lines where we understand that the root of this the root of oppression lies in the exploitation of some sort of resource like that's a that's marxist analysis within feminism and it it came to us from second wave feminist thinkers and you know socialist socialist organizers and socialist feminists of the past it didn't come from the liberals so that being said that's why i think that adopting socialist ideas and especially especially socialist practice praxis is one of the most important things we can do in terms of rebuilding the feminist movement. And socialism also supports a sort of separatist ideology. They're, they're very similar, almost identical conceptually. Um, so in terms of radical feminism versus socialism, there are a couple of important differences that I sort of wanted to get into. So socialist feminists see um My apologies. Socialist feminists see material reality and um, economic exploitation as the primary um, drivers of change in society and also the primary sort of loci, loci of oppression. So even though, for example, gender roles or beauty standards can be very oppressing to women, Socialist feminists will say, yes, they are, but the way that we fix them is that we change the organization of society so women have a lot more autonomy. They don't need to curry favor from men in their lives. They don't need to apply lipstick or, you know, do their hair really nice in order to be respected. Radical feminists would say it all matters and we have to do it all at once and a lot of stealth styled radical feminists on the internet who I understand are not necessarily the same as the leaders of the second wave feminist movement, um, will privilege more superficial issues over kind of building broad coalitions for long term change. And while I I, I I'm sorry. I respect a lot of people who have dedicated their lives to rebuilding the movement completely, but I do I do think this is a bad strategy. So many women will say, oh, you have to swear off men, oh, you have to stop performing femininity, oh, you have to do all these sort of superficial things in order to consider yourself like a real and serious feminist. And when anyone criticizes that, they'll say, like, oh, um, you know, this is, this is basically a loyalty test. You know, if you're not doing these things, like, you're just not committed. And I, I, this is, this is just wrong, in my opinion. I would rather build big coalitions of many imperfect people to fundamentally change the way that society is organized so that women don't necessarily have to constantly put themselves at risk for retaliatory male violence and particularly for, for poverty and scapegoating because those are the things that happen when you alone stand up to a patriarchal system. It's really hard. And I don't think that doing that alone or doing that in small numbers is actually going to be as effective as it is to build energy to, once again, fundamentally change the way that society functions. Many women in the second wave were not perfect. You know, they had like weird ideas about political lesbianism. Some of them believed in psychic powers. Like they were not this sort of political ideal. And a lot of them performed femininity to some extent. And we were still able to see, like, vast sweeping changes in our culture, in the social services that were offered to women, in the very fabric of society, in the laws. Women were able to play sports. Incest was taken seriously as a social problem. No-fault divorce was legalized in, I think, all 50 states. There was a big push to get marital rape criminalized. Like, these are all huge gains. And they were not necessarily made by perfect people. So I think that we should, while individual activism is great and consumer activism is great, it's not necessarily the full picture. And I think that we should all be a little bit more open toward accepting women who have our most important goals in mind. And we need to prioritize and say, oh, like, is it more important that we get wages for housework Or is it more important that a smaller group of women don't perform femininity or don't date men? And I would just like to push back a little bit on that and say, you know, like, prioritize. Do we want to be perfect or do we want to change the world? Because I want to build a movement that changes the world because the world fucking sucks right now. So, um, speaking of that, my other big cleavage with radical feminism is on prostitution. I don't support, um, I don't think that you can be a feminist and believe that, um, sex is something that is a, is a useful commodity or a a real commodity. Um, you also can't be a communist and support the sex industry, but, the way that we go about women exiting has to be a way that doesn't funnel them in to bad marriages. I think a lot of um, radical feminists in reaction to many liberals pushing this sort of idea that we should decriminalize sex work and sex work is just like any other job with blanket rejection of this idea without sort of taking stock to understand what the the liberals are reacting to, which is a very real sort of moralization of prostitution and um, a complete like sort of blanket ban on women, women's um, on on prostituted women's participation in society, as well as. Um, Yeah, um, basically, yeah. And I think that as feminists, we need to stop, in a lot of ways, singling out sex workers as this sort of special class of people. In a lot of ways, many sex workers are escaping financial and marital situations that are just as bad, if not worse. And we need to create a path that doesn't involve stigmatizing them for them to create more meaning in their lives and have more control over their bodies. The point is to help more women have more bodily autonomy, not necessarily to punish women who are engaging in prostitution, by choice or not, as sort of traitors to the movement. And I've seen a lot of this online. And it makes me really, really uncomfortable. Um, I spent a lot of time around sex workers. I have... I, I've i worked blue collar in blue-collar industries for a, a great period of my life. Like, I know a lot of women personally. I have a lot of friends who are casually, are not so casually involved in the trade to make ends meet. And... It makes me really, really uncomfortable that I have some feminist friends or acquaintances, more like they're not my friends, who would not want to associate with these women or think that they're better than them or would rather they get a much lower paying job rather than do something that may be dangerous but also gives them a little bit more freedom and autonomy compared to the sort of caliber of straight men that they could link up with to essentially get the same economic benefits. So I think it's a little bit more complicated, and I think that a blanket ban on prostitution without a sort of larger left-wing package that um, raises wages, um, does wages for housework, that would be super important, you know, like gives everyone in the states a right to housing, etc., etc., etc. I think that a large blanket on prostitution is a mistake without those sorts of deals and without those other sorts of reforms in place. So just some food for thought. Um, and I also have no problem <laughs> talking to sex workers. <laughs> um, I'm sorry. It's the idea. It's like so ridiculous that you could be like a feminist and like take yourself very seriously and not like, like fuck with the, the exact people that you're trying to help. Like it's, it's beyond me. So anyway, um, sort of nuances on my position. Basically, I want to rebuild the feminist movement. I think it's really important that we re- rebuild the feminist movement. I want to focus very strongly on economic goals rather than sort of culture war shit. And um, I think that everyone has a place in the feminist movement, no matter how imperfect you are. Basically. And I think that we shouldn't uh, be, be so arrogant as to not try to learn from whatever movements we can learn from. Because any serious attempt to change the world is is fruitful in some way, and there's there's stuff we can learn. So that is all. Um, Some quick announcements. Uh, I'm still looking for you to send me all of your shit, so let me know if you're doing any kind of creative project, if you sell anything, if you make art, I will put it on the podcast, I will get it out to the people, and uh, look out Next week, I'm going to be doing, I'm going to be dropping, hmm, I think an educational based on Engel's um, family and private property so that is good. Um, it's a foundational feminist text. I know, so sad, written by a guy. But I, we'll go into it a little bit more in the episode, but I'm pretty sure, and academics are actually pretty sure that he was riffing off of his very cool girlfriend who couldn't write, unfortunately. Um, I got some good interviews coming up with some detransitioners, and uh, yeah, we'll keep rolling. So, sorry about the delay, and hopefully we'll keep things going on a weekly schedule for a while. So, thank you so much, and you can find me at fight f1 ght softly on tumblr instagram and write to me through my email which is char fight softly spelled the exact same way thank you so much and i'll see you next week